In today's passage, Jesus talks about two men who go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. And we immediately know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, don't we? You know, the, the Pharisee is definitely the, the bad guy because they're always the bad guys in the New Testament. You know, the, the Pharisees are always wearing the sinister mustaches that you know, they're, they're twirling with their fingers while the tax collectors are, are always portrayed in this humble, self-effacing, rather generous light. The problem with uh, our knowledge of the parable is Jesus' audience would have seen it the exact opposite that we do. The good guys unmistakably were the Pharisees, highly respected members of their society, where the bad guys are unmistakably the tax collectors who were you know, lower than the lowest of the low. And, and the, infor- uh, the unfortunate effect of us you know, mistaking the good guy and the bad guy is simply this. Because we do that, we really miss the force, the forcefulness of this passage. I mean, when the, his first hearers heard this, it would have been like a, a sucker punch to the, to the superplexes. Like, I mean, the, the wind would have been knocked out of them. Not, that a tax collector would go home justified? That's crazy talk. Uh, but for us, that a, that a Pharisee would be self-righteous and dismissed, you know, that just plays into our already preconceived notions. And therefore, the scandal, the scandal and shock value of the parable is completely missed upon us. I think the challenge then is to try as best we can as listeners to recover the shock value, um, to listen in such a way that uh, we feel the wind knocked out of us as they did when they first heard it. And that's, I don't know if I'll accomplish that in preaching, but that's certainly my aim and my challenge to you as we read verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. I can tell you what our family has been up to this past week and really for the last uh, couple months now. We are in the thick of the college application process. We're going through it for the first time. To tell you the truth, I wish it was the last time. (laughs) I can't imagine having to do this four more times. Mercy. What an exhausting, daunting process. Those of you who have ever done it before, uh, how did you ever survive? There's, there's so much, uh, for us, anxiety um, 
and so much work invested into researching colleges and writing resumes and essays and transcripts, etc., etc. We might have seen that U.S. News and World Report came out with their annual college rankings, and the number one college in America today is none other than, want to take a guess? It's Princeton. And for the longest time, it was Harvard, but, but now it is Princeton. And uh, those of you Ivy League graduates, you can haggle with each other over which one is, is in, indeed the best. But I, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine, imagine your son applies to Princeton. He goes through the rigorous application process, and after many days, you know, anxiously waiting for the mailman to arrive, it's funny how you pay attention to the mail when you're looking for an important letter to come, in the, come to you. Um, yeah, after many days, he, he, you finally receive that letter in the mail which reads, Congratulations, we have examined your son's application. He has been subject to the highest level of scrutiny, and we are pleased to inform you that you know, he is the creme de la creme, the best of the best, admitted to the finest school in America, free room, board, and tuition, Congratulations. Now, as a parent, when you receive that letter, how do you feel? Do you think to yourself, eh, that's pretty nice. Maybe it'll improve his job prospects in the future. No, not at all. You, You cherish that moment. There is a deep, deep satisfaction that you will never forget. Something Deep is going on there. Something more than just pragmatics or or even parental approval. Um, You are experiencing in that moment. Do you know what you're experiencing? You're experiencing the satisfaction of righteousness. Righteousness. Now, I realize we don't normally associate the word righteousness with with getting accepted to college. But basically, in the Bible, you know, it really... It really has to do, righteousness is about being scrutinized thoroughly and finally being approved and accepted. What I would suggest to you is that when the the parent, when you are holding that letter in your hand, grimming, beaming from ear to ear, that is what righteousness feels like. He's made it. He's in. He's the best. Look with me at verse 11. The setting of this parable Uh, It takes place in the temple. We think it most likely takes place during either one or two public worship services. The morning, the the time of the the morning sacrifice, which would have been at dawn, or the time of the evening sacrifice, which would have been three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 11, uh, the Pharisee, it says, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. You know, why is he standing by himself? Uh, Most likely, he's standing by himself because he's moved to the front to be closer to the altar. If you were to put it in another another way, uh, he's sitting in the front row, the front pew at church. I mean, he's paying close attention to everything that's going on. Uh, The Pharisee was a whole lot better than you give him credit for. And the tax collector was immeasurably worse than we give him credit for. One of the uh, New Testament scholars who commented on the passage, he said, to give you an idea how a tax collector would have been culturally uh, thought of in that day, he said, quote, it would be like World War II when a French mayor in World War II 
got rich on selling tips to uh, the to the Nazis, basically in- informing the Nazis on the French resistance, lining his pocket with Nazi bribes. Can you think of anybody who's who's more of a scumbag than a French mayor who's betraying his own people to the Nazis? That's tax collectors. They weren't simply IRS agents. As much as we don't like the IRS, these are traitors to their people. And on the other hand, the Pharisees were much, much better people than we give them credit for. I mean, these are men and women. No, actually, no women. (laughs) These were men who took their religion very seriously. Do you know where the Pharisees, how they come about? They're not pastors. They're not priests. They're not clergy. They are a, a lay movement in Israel that's trying to bring about spiritual, uh, spiritual reformation in the people. They take their religion very, very seriously, so seriously, they're trying to be that movement inside God's people that takes a lukewarm assembly and actually makes them what God intends them to be. And so what the Pharisees do is, okay, they, go through, they read all through Torah and they, de- they determine... How many tithes, that is 10% offerings, how many tithes does Torah require? And what they find out is when you total up all of the tithes, Torah requires somewhere between 20 and 25% of your income. I mean, most normal people would not pay 20% off the top, but they did. 20 to 25%. They donated to the work of the temple and to, uh, the, to this construction of the temple it, itself. You notice how he also prays, how he, um, he fasts. In Israel, there was only one day a year when you were required to fast. That was the day of Yom Kippur. Other than that, I mean, that was it. But the Pharisees, in order to prepare themselves for God's kingdom and all of that, they decided they would fast two times a week. Every Tuesday and every Thursday, they would fast, and it was a complete fast. It wasn't just simply, we're, we're going to um, not eat food. It was a fast of, of everything, including water. They wouldn't drink. So, here you have one man who is the riffraff scumbag of society. And here you have another man who gives 25% of his income and, and fasts. Twice every week. Question, who do you want to be your daughter's boyfriend? Right? Honey, you can bring that that Pharisee home any day that you want to, to meet me. But whatever you do, don't you dare bring a tax collector into my house. Verse 11. Going back to verse 11. He stands to pray. The customary posture of prayer was the very one that Moses used in uh, the time that he was praying. I think it was Israel was in the battle against, was it the Amalekites? Maybe it was another ites. But the customary posture of prayer is arms out, palms turned upward, head turned upward to God, standing and, and calling upon him. He prays, God, I thank you. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. Probably it was the the formula, blessed be God. God, I thank you that I am not like. And there he goes through and he lists the people he's not like. He is not actually, he's not like. 
He's not like a robber. He's generous with his money. He's not like an adulterer. He's never cheated on his wife. And he's certainly not like a tax collector. He, if you think that this is a really snobbish prayer, um, well, you need to realize that the rabbis in their day, we have rabbinical documents from 2,000 years ago where the rabbis prayed a very similar prayer. They said, Blessed art thou, O Lord, that thou did not make me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. <laughs> but the fact is, he's not... In some very important ways, he is not like the tax collector. And I know that you're not agreeing with me, so let me give you an illustration of this. Who do you consider the vilest person in our society today? What is the vilest type of person? I mean, we would probably say it's either a child molester or it's a con man who tries to rip off the elderly, preys upon elderly people taking away their life savings, or it's a sexual predator, or it is a serial rapist. Is the Pharisee like that? No, the man is, he is, he's perfectly respectable, devoted, religious, wears a suit and tie to church every Sunday. The Pharisee is a respectable Presbyterian. He's polite. Do you see what Jesus Christ is doing when he tells the story this way? He's saying two men come to All Saints Presbyterian Church on Sunday morning. One of them is the vilest individual in our society, and the other is a respectable Presbyterian in suit and tie. Both men die in an automobile accident on their way home. Both men stand before God, who is declared righteous and justified, the vilest member in our society or the guy who tithes 20%. Do you see what Jesus is doing when he tells a story like this? He's, he, it's insulting. It is downright insulting to have a story framed like that. Because uh, you know he's, just, he's putting a, um, a bullseye on your chest. And I guarantee you when they heard this, they were angered and frustrated by his telling of the story. Just as... Uh, I'm trying to make you feel <laughs> anger and angry and baffled, baffled. How can the most horrid person in our society be justified, be scrutinized, and be considered perfectly right and acceptable with God, while the man who's never cheated on his wife, who works an honest job, who serves on several church committees, he ends up going to hell? Point number one, brothers and sisters. I know you've heard this before, but it bears repeating many, many times, and that is, grace is scandalous. Grace is scandalous. It is shocking. It is disturbing. If the grace and mercy of God does not leave you feeling uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, queasy, uneasy, frustrated, if the grace and mercy of God doesn't punch you in the stomach, then you probably haven't really taken in. Uh, you probably don't know exactly what grace is. No, the reason that Jesus frames the parable in this way is because he wants to drive home the point that cannot be emphasized enough that the only way we can be acceptable with God is by grace and nothing else. There's, there's absolutely nothing else. Verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. 
In other words, the tax collector sat in the very back pew in church because he didn't want to be seen there and he didn't want to see other people. He stands at a distance. He's ashamed to be seen. Verse 13, he would not even look up to heaven, but he, get the picture of this. He beat his breast. Like if we came in here on Sunday morning, honestly, and during the confession of sin, one of us started going, ah! That would be very uncomfortable for the rest of us to see. He beat his breast. This this public expression of of anguish over his sins. He, He says, my heart. He beats, I think he beats his breast because he's saying, my heart is so desperately wicked, and I am such a a desperate, desperate man. The reason he did this is because he met God in that worship service. This is what happens when you really meet God, not when you come to a worship service and you put in 75 or 90 minutes, but this is what happens when people really meet God. Job chapter 40, verse 4. Job, probably the most upstanding citizen of his time, when he met the Lord God, he says, what shall I, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's what it's like to meet God. Isaiah 6, 5, the one that's so familiar to us. Woe, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What is it like to meet God? Habakkuk 3.16. I hear thee speak, O Lord, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound of thy voice. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Revelation 1.17. John, the last book of the Bible. When he, he says, when I saw Jesus Christ, I, I did what? I fell down on my face as though I were a dead man. This man has met God at church. <laughs> he is desperate, and he desperately throws himself upon God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, I, don't, I really don't think this is a message that we can emphasize enough. The only thing you and I have going for us is that we have nothing going for us. The only thing that we have going for us is that God is gracious and merciful. Nothing we do is the basis for God's acceptance of us. It is is grace and nothing else. Mercy, nothing else. Number two. One of the dangers reading the parable of the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector is those of us who have been in church for a long time, we, the punchline is gone. And I alluded to this at the beginning of the sermon. You say, well, I've, just, I know, I've known ever since my first Sunday school class that you don't get into heaven by your good works. You, know, you can't earn your way there. It, it's, uh, it's only by grace, yada, yada, yada. We, just, we know that. We, I've heard it since I was you know, yay tall, that type of thing. So there's no punchline. But there is a punchline. If you go back to the very first line of the, uh, the parable, read with me verse 9. Luke tells us that this is why, Je- one of the reasons why Jesus told this, this uh, parable is, he says, to some who were confident, and here's the key phrase, they were confident and they looked down 
They looked down on everyone else. Jesus tells this parable in order to show us, who have been in Sunday school all our lives, the contemptuous attitude that we have toward many other people. It's a window into the contempt of our own souls. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, Don't you just hate panhandlers? Don't you hate panhandlers? Oh, those people just go get a job. Don't you hate people of the other political party? Can you believe how stupid they are for voting in this next election differently than you will? Are you, when you're at work, does the idea ever come pass through your mind that you're surrounded by da- dumb, lazy, or disorganized people? <laughs> are those your coworkers? Dumb, lazy, or disorganized? Why, just th- why don't they get their act straight? You know who people are the who are the people that really get on your nerves? How about women who can't control their children in a store? How about exercise fanatics? CrossFit people? Apple enthusiasts? <laughs> braggarts. How do you like braggarts? Arminians. For those of you who are theological. Jesus says that our contempt is a window into our own souls. If you trace the lines of your contempt, you find how much the Pharisee still resides in you. You know, you can find your inner Pharisee by just simply finding where all of your your contempt goes. Idiot drivers out there who don't use their their turn signals or, or neighbors who don't weed their grass or the... This is the great danger. The great danger for respectable people who have respectable families, who have worked respectable jobs and have always been respectable Christians. The great danger is to think that the world would be better off if everybody were more like me. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes the point that the longer you're a Christian, the more you understand your own badness. Not simply your goodness, but your badness. And one of the illustrations that is given, um, if you've ever gotten a new pair of eyeglasses, you might have known quite a while before you got the eyeglasses that your vision was not great, it was not up to snuff, it was deteriorating. But it's only when you slip the new prescription on your nose, you really can see for the first time, whoa, I (laughs) I never realized how bad my eyesight was until this. And that's what Lewis says in mere Christianity, he says this, quote, when a man or woman is getting better, they understand more and more clearly all of the evils they have passed, of their past, and, and all of the evil that is still left in them. On, on the other hand, when a man or woman is getting worse, they don't understand their own badness. They think they're just a pretty good, peop- a pretty good person. Ask your neighbor, you're a good person. Probably don't answer. That's going to not be a great conversation starter. But, but I mean, everybody thinks they're a good person. Yeah, I might do a few bad things, but we're all good people. We're all respectable people. Lewis goes on. The moderately bad man knows that he is not very good. And the thoroughly, the thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You can understand the nature of drunkenness only when you are sober. 
You can understand sleep only when you are awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly uh, and, and not, when it's, not when it's not. So here's the point, number two. The Christian who is growing in holiness is the one who is increasingly aware of the Pharisee which still remains inside of them. If we're growing in holiness, we will become more aware of uh, the contempt that we hold other people in. We'll catch ourselves trying to hold ourselves up as the standard, and we will increasingly realize, I, I, I have no right to look down on anyone else. Not when I'm as sinful as I still am today. And I can see that. I can see it more clearly than I ever had in the past. And that's number two. Then finally, number three. As I said earlier, this parable takes place during either the morning or the evening sacrifice. It was at that sacrifice that the lamb, the daily offering, was was slaughtered. The priest would cut the lamb up into pieces. He would take the blood and anoint the horns of the altar. Then he'd burn the offering and make atonement for sin. I believe that the tax collector and Pharisee were praying as they were watching, witnessing the, the daily sacrifice. You say, well, where do you get that in the passage? You're just, you're reading it, something in here. You're trying to be a little too cute in your, your sermon. Well, I, no, I think it's here. And it's in verse 13. Again, back to verse 13. The tax collector beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But the only thing is in the Greek, the word mercy is not the customary word used through all the rest of the New Testament for mercy. The word there is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And the word means literally, God be propitious. God, I always mispronounce propitiation. (laughs) But God be propitious. In other words, God let let the sacrifice satisfy my guilt and satisfy your wrath. God be propitious to me. The other place, if you're interested in looking it up, where this is used is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where it reads, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, the very same word, propitiation for the sins of the people. A similar word is used in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation in his blood. The reason the, reason the tax collector goes home justified is because he throws himself on the mercy of God as is witnessed in that sacrifice of propitiation. Yes, Jesus Christ His cross is even in this parable. Let me conclude. I would go back to where I started the sermon. um, Our kids and college applications and all of that. You know, most of our hopes and aspirations in this life are, are bound up in our kids. We believe that the most important thing we do in this world is to raise our kids. I mean, even non Christians, go ask a little league coach or a theater, um, whoever's in charge of, of the theater, if your kids mean a whole lot to you, yeah, they, they do because 
Christians and non-Christians both kind of think of their kids as their life's work. Do you know what your kids need to hear from you, parents? They need to hear from you. They need to hear repeated infinitum, ad infinitum, grace. They need to hear grace from your lips. You don't get my love and approval by being good. You don't get my love and approval by being useful or successful or making my life a little bit easier or getting into Princeton or hitting the game-winning shot or getting the lead in the play, getting the solo. You don't get my love that way because I didn't get God's love that way. And I love you. They need to hear I love you. I love the present version of you. (laughs) Not the sinless version of you that's going to come in the future, but the present sinful version of you. I love that version of you with all of my heart because I love you by grace, just as God loves me by grace and not by merit. I mean, I hope that's a message you tell them every day. I know that this parent does a very bad job of reemphasizing that message with the regularity it needs to be spoken. I wonder if your kids would actually talk about the Christian life in, in terms. If I just interviewed them and asked them uh, you know, some theological, not theological, but just questions. Would they talk to me about our faith in terms of the only thing that I got going for me is that I got nothing going for me. The only thing that's wonderful about me are that's acceptable about me is Jesus. Are those the, is that the language that they process and, and traffic in? Parents, that's what we have to reinforce. The last challenge I would give you is would you please sit down and talk to them either how in your own life you have been the Pharisee or you have been the tax collector or most likely you have been both. Would you tell that part of your story from your own life? This is me, this is me, or both of them are me, and and share what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for I tell you, this man, the man who cried for mercy, looking to the sacrificial altar, this man went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those, those who humble themselves will be exalted. 